0: Last week, the Office of Personnel Management made some big news, raising the minimum wage for federal employees to $15 per hour. Besides the living wage angle, there's also a diversity, equity, inclusion and accessibility angle. Federal News Network's David Thornton has more. David, let's start with the minimum wage hike. Who does it affect and is it really a big deal considering federal salaries now?
1: So according to the Office of Personnel Management, it affects about 67,000 federal employees, most of whom are at GS4 or below. OPM Director Kiran Ahuja and President Biden specifically mentioned certain groups of federal employees that this will affect, clerks and janitorial staff on military bases and in the exchanges, wildland firefighters, nursing assistants at the VA, and laborers working on infrastructure projects. So these are not the kinds of people who've been able to work from home for the last two years. And it's also worth noting that this isn't limited to Feds. Due to another executive order from last year, the minimum wage for federal contractors also got bumped to $15 an hour on the same day. And that affects around 300,000 contractors. Now, last year, Labor Secretary Marty Walsh said it affects workers like food service workers and people who clean and maintain national parks. So there's a lot of people across the whole federal community that just got a pay raise on Monday. And this is a really big deal because that's a higher minimum wage than any state except for California, and even that's not universal in California. Small businesses have a slightly lower minimum wage than that. There are a few cities that go high or higher. New York City is $15 an hour, for example, and D.C. just went up to fifteen fifty. But these people who saw their rates hiked on Monday are spread across the entire country, so a lot of those extra dollars in their paychecks will go even farther. And pay equity will also help federal agencies compete with the private sector in the job market.
0: And that's a good point. There are a lot of federal employees and a lot of contractors that are not doing rocket science, that are not senior executives doing big policy work and so on and running big programs, but just to keep the... Uh keep the operations going, the lawns trimmed. If you walk through any of the uh, Senate or House cafeterias and the federal cafeterias, those are all operated by contractors with some low-wage people. So good point on the numbers there.
1: Interesting. Exactly.
0: And what about the DEIA angle, the diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility angle here?
1: So the administration made made it a point to talk about how the majority of the people this would affect are women and people of color. This will help address the pay gap for those people, uh, and this is a step forward for pay equity. The White House released a fact sheet uh, along with the executive. Order for Contractor Minimum Wage that referenced the Center for American Progress and American Economic Association in discussing how it will specifically help improve the situation for people in those demographics and their families. And this lines up with the administration's larger DEIA initiative launched last year. And this also specifically includes people with disabilities, which is important because the Fair Labor Standards Act in certain situations allows employers to pay subminimum wages to people with disabilities.
0: And also, David, you're reporting there was some more movement on the DEIA initiatives last week beyond the wage discussion.
1: Yeah, OPM and the Commerce Department hosted a roundtable last Thursday on equitable hiring in the federal government because raising the minimum wage is a great step toward equity for women and people of color who are already employed by the federal government. But those groups also tend to face higher barriers to employment. So OPM Director Kieran Ahuja and Deputy Commerce Secretary Don Graves heard from a number of representatives from advocacy organizations and higher education. And they got lots of recommendations on how to improve equity in hiring. For example, Deputy Commerce Secretary Graves said the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration recently partnered with historically black colleges and universities, or HBCUs, to develop recruitment partnerships to the tune of $60 million in grants. But Tanya Smith Jackson, provost at North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University and former program director at the National Science Foundation, said that there are other best practices the government can be adopting as well. For example, just providing money isn't always enough. Industry is seeing far more success than public sector by co-designing programs that actually create a pathway to employment. And industry is also spending far more time on campus, sponsoring events, and simply raising awareness among students that these jobs exist. And Mia Ives-Rubli, director of the Disability Justice Initiative at the Center for American Progress, said OPM could bring more attention to its Schedule A hiring authority for people with disabilities. Now that's one of the agency's biggest tools to streamline hiring of people with disabilities, but it's just not very well known.
0: And we've seen a lot of these initiatives. Army has one, several other civilian agencies have partnerships and grant programs with the HBCUs. But, you know, upstream from that is the issue of making sure that people that attend those colleges or that are coming out of public schools and high schools are interested in those technical and managerial and scientific fields because that's really what's needed. I mean, the National Science Foundation just released a new strategy, a national strategy, along with the White House, for quantum education so that the quantum workforce of the future is needed. So the question is getting people that are typically underrepresented in these things into those fields where they can really contribute in a
1: very major way. All right. so Exactly. What can we expect next in all of this? We'll see in March what agencies plan to do to make up some of this ground. That's when the executive order calls for agencies to submit DEIA strategic plans. Now, Ahuja said in the meantime, OPM is working to create metrics and ways to track them to measure progress once these strategic plans get put into action. But she also mentioned the potential stumbling block of budgets. And she said that recruitment, partnerships, and internships are some of the first things to get cut. So she called for both Congress and the community to hold agencies accountable when it comes time to put money towards these DEIA efforts. So we'll see how those things pan out.
0: Yeah, those kinds of budgets, recruitment, partnerships, internships tend to go out the window when things get tight, along with training and education type budgets for the employees you have now. Exactly. And of course, we have a continuing resolution, which will probably be extended come February 18th in a couple of weeks, because even if they have a deal till they get together and convene, and now the whole Capitol Hill is tied up in knots over a Supreme Court nominee, this could all get pushed back. So it's very hard to find the money for anything new in this fiscal year.
1: Yep. It makes it even harder for agencies to budget for these kinds of things. It makes it even more likely that these programs will get cut.
0: Federal News Network's David Thornton. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture backed Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here.
3: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
2: Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you?
3: So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing
2: As a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy.